You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. Where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. This is Jessica, and I'll be your host for today's podcast. Welcome back. As we've observed before, Denver seems to have more advocates per capita than most state capitals. Like many newcomers to the Mile High City, Tim Taylor came for the quality of life. He launched a youth-serving nonprofit and quickly met business leaders interested in better education statewide. Thanks to that, a dozen years ago, Colorado Succeeds was born. After six years and some local successes, Tim launched a national organization, America Succeeds. Both were based on the core principles of business that apply to education. Transparency, return on investment, accountability, competition, and customers first. With support from the Albertsons Foundation, Idaho was the second state to join, and they started one of our favorite fall conferences, the Adventure Summit in Boise. In fall 2017, America Succeeds released the Age of Agility, Education Pathways for the Future of Work, a call to attention to the misalignment between what is being taught in schools, both K-12 and higher education, and the knowledge and skills and behaviors required by the modern workplace. We think it's one of the best summaries of what's happening in the world. Age of Agility was a conscious effort to inject the future of work into the 36 gubernatorial races in 2018. It was also an effort to ensure that educators are valued and equipped with the agility to succeed in a rapidly changing workforce and to maximize their contributions regardless of the length of their career in education. Let's listen in as Tim talks with Tom about the age of agility. Tim Taylor, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Uh, Thanks, Tom. It is uh, great to finally have you on uh, from beautiful Denver, Colorado. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. But Tim, you didn't go to high school there. You grew up on the East Coast, didn't you? I did. I grew up just outside of Washington, D.C. and Reston, Virginia. It used to be a sleepy little place, but uh, now a lot lot of folks are probably familiar with it for flying into Dallas Airport. So I think think you and I were of the generation where our parents uh, could pick a good neighborhood and be pretty well assured that their kid would go to a good high school and they'd step on to the American escalator, the you know escalator of the American dream. Yeah, that's my story. Um, my folks, uh, I'm first generation college. Um, my mother is German and was an ER uh, operating nurse. And uh, my dad grew up in North Carolina and they moved to the Washington DC suburbs and uh, Fairfax County schools gave me a, a, a really nice education and uh, opportunity to go on to, to a four-year degree first and then graduate school after that. Well, you mentioned your dad didn't go to college and, and told you that he was probably the last gen generation that you know could get a good family wage job and move into management and, and lead a, a, a great middle-class life, right? Yeah, that was that was his story. He uh, he did sales of banking equipment, and uh, we lived a very comfortable um, middle class lifestyle in in Northern Virginia. And um, but he but he pretty much insisted that I explore. He said, you know, I was the last the last class, last chance generation of of being able to do this, um, and and really encouraged me to go on, even though. He didn't know exactly how to go through the process or, or help me with that. So we, we navigated it alone. So I understand what first generation college students go through. It's not an easy process and there's not always right. a lot of help. No, it's it's complicated and it does help to have parents that have been through it before. Um, I want you to talk about your path to advocacy. Tim, you run uh, America Succeeds, America's leading 
business-sponsored education advocacy group. Um, but what, what's the backstory? I guess it started with a Colorado Succeeds. How, how did that organization get started? Yeah, I'll, um, I'll even back up a little bit from there, which will help tell the story. Uh, when we first moved to Denver, Colorado, um, I noticed that um, there were a lot of kids. I was an avid golfer at the time. I noticed there were a lot of kids at one of the city golf courses. Uh, so while I was out there playing and didn't know a lot of people, I watched a lot of inner city kids walk around the golf course. And I thought there was an opportunity to engage them in the game. And I launched a nonprofit called Open Fairways that taught kids the honor and the etiquette and the respect that went along with the game of golf. I'm not really even intending to, to, to have anybody become the next Tiger Woods, but just to use a game that I loved and create a way to give back in the community. And realized through that opportunity that the education system, like this was, was, was failing a lot of kids. And I was running this, this little program to help some after school kids. And right, I was, I was catching a handful of them at a time. Um, and learned about a new organization that was starting in Denver. Um, it, it hadn't even launched, but a guy by the name of Zach Neumeyer, who runs Sage Hospitality, one of the largest hospitality companies in the U.S., and he was getting the business community involved in improving public education. And, and I saw it as an opportunity to take my work with these kids to scale as opposed to trying to catch a few hundred kids a year by helping them on a golf course. This was an opportunity in, to impact systems, which was Zach's grand vision for launching Colorado Succeeds, uh, business leaders engaged in public education to transform a system where they're the end users of. They're the ones who are hiring these kids. And um, many of the employers were recognizing that the, the kids weren't prepared and they had the obligation, the opportunity and capacity to do something about it. And uh, it launched with the help of uh, Zach's vision and then Pete Coors from Coors Brewing Company and a uh, Donna Lynn, who is now Colorado's lieutenant governor, but at the time was running Kaiser Permanente out here. And um, it was uh, it was really something to be a part of. There is some, I think it's worth noting that uh, I grew up in Denver as well. And there is something unique about Metro Denver, I've, I've often said, has more advocates per capita than any other city that I, I can think of. Uh, there, there are a lot of nonprofit organizations. And it's one reason that uh, the Denver Public Schools um, has been able to continue to elect a pretty aggressive uh, public board, uh, just because there's so many strong advocacy groups. Um, is there something about Denver that attracts a lot of uh, advocates, just the quality of life? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, quality of life is superb. I mean, I um uh, we're not looking for anybody else to move to Colorado. Uh, we've got it. We've got it pretty good right now, and the, yeah. the state's filling up. But um, but it is a great place to live and raise a family. Um, I, I think it's a great observation. I think that um, one of the things that we see is that the the advocacy organizations work really well together. And when Colorado Six Seeds launched. Um, it was very clear what our lane was. We were business leaders that were working on improving education systems. And there are a lot of other organizations that are working on improving education systems, to your point. And I think one of the things is the recognition of funders that it's going to take a lot of small organizations to go up against a really strong status quo. Um, I We used to talk a little bit, the, 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 the analogy was that uh, it takes a lot of Davids to go up with a Goliath of that size. And so a lot of times it was 
uh, multiple organizations kind of taking on the issues on multiple fronts that uh, that allowed Colorado to make the changes that it did. Right. Um, a quick backstory. It was really uh, Barbara Bryan at the Colorado Children's Campaign. Uh, I joined her board in 1990, and it it took her a couple months to turn me into an education advocate, and that really changed my life. I at the time was a public company uh, finance manager and and uh, a few months with Barb, she convinced me I was an education advocate. Um, so the roles like the one that you've been playing are uh, powerful and sometimes life-changing for people. Yeah. And I think you can track a lot of this back to Barbara O'Brien, right? If we built her family tree, she was extraordinary yeah. in, uh, in transforming the Denver landscape for kids generally. And then education, right? Just seems to be the 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 single greatest leverage point to transform lives. And she, uh, she's, she's inspired a lot of folks to do great stuff. And um, I'd consider myself among those. So uh, Colorado succeeds, uh, goes well. You, you led that for about six years and then launched America Succeeds. Is that right? Yeah. So um, this is the case of the, um, the, the, the child kind of having a parent as opposed to vice versa. Um, we uh, we were fortunate. There was a lot of hard work, and we did experience quite a bit of success in in Colorado. Um, and Colorado succeeds was one of the players. Um, but a number of other states then began to reach out to us to say, you know, how did you how did you engage business? What was it about what you're doing that that got business involved? We've tried this. But sometimes business doesn't exactly know how to engage, although they have a desire to. And um, our, our answer pretty much was, well, we made every mistake you could possibly make, and then we figured it out. Um, so uh, we wound up with some core principles that became the bread and butter of Colorado Succeeds and that we based the launch of America Succeeds on. And that is um, business principles that apply to education. And there's five of them. It's transparency, accountability, return on investment, putting the customer first, and competition and choice. And at Colorado Succeeds, we did not talk about specific bills uh, without tying them back to the principles or what they were trying to accomplish related to those principles. And business leaders could testify on behalf of those principles as opposed to technicalities in a bill. And they felt comfortable with the way that those principles applied to education. And um, as other states started asking us about it, it was that secret sauce that started to tie it together. Um, and they said, well, we can get some business leaders around that in our state. And um, uh, Idaho was uh, was the first place that America Succeeds went um, because of the Albertson Family Foundation that uh, that is there uh, who said, we'd like you to come to, to Idaho if, if, uh, and we'll, we'll help you launch this national organization. So they... They had a lot to do with it, and uh, Idaho has been kind of our second home ever since. I I love the annual conference there. It's um, you run the only conference that has uh, recess, and I know I can always count on uh, getting out in the Idaho backcountry during your conference. Uh, Albertson has uh, been a great leader there, a good example of local philanthropy that's having a, a national impact in how they do their work. They are there. It's a it's a great uh, foundation to work with. And we've been blessed by by working with many around the country. But, um, uh, yeah, they certainly are doing some great stuff. And as you mentioned, host our annual summit adventure uh, where we try to bring a little adventure to 
to education. And um, we're, we're always thrilled to have you. How would you describe the mission of America Succeeds? Uh, our mission is to uh, engage business to transform education around the country. Um, and America Succeeds really is a network of statewide business organizations. Um, one of the things that when we were launching America Succeeds, we uh, took very seriously was that we didn't think we could be in Denver, Colorado and tell a bunch of other states what they needed to be doing related to their public education systems. So what we've tried to do is, is teach people to fish um, but by showing them how you can build a business voice for education to engage in state policy where these changes are really happening. Um, this is still the last bastion um, of, a, of a topic that's handled state by state. There's not super strong federal policy that's, uh, that's handling this. So states have got to there's, there's going to be winners and losers. There's states that are certainly far more aggressive in trying to transform their policies or keep up with the changes that we're seeing uh, in the economy and around the world. And um, it's, it's just a state-by-state -state battle. Tim, I, I think a couple of years ago, you began to notice changes in the economy. You, you, you um, have come to describe that as uh, the age of agility, but maybe you could describe changes that you began to see in the economy that that led you to think uh, we're into a new era that has some important implications for uh, our country and for education. Yeah. So, um, you know, as, as a group of business leaders, um, we were cognizant of uh, articles and news stories that we just we couldn't pick up anything without seeing folks talking about how the world was was changing because of automation and AI and technology and um, how fast that was going to impact people, employees, uh, companies who are going to hire uh, differently or looking for different skills or skills gaps. Uh, so we, we saw all of these different stories. And, um, you know, Thomas Friedman refers, refers to it as the fourth industrial revolution, where the fourth time in history, we're fundamentally going to work differently than we did previously. And that's, that's unbelievable to try and live through and navigate. And as the business voice for education, what we realized was that of all the stories we, we were seeing and reading and hearing, very few of them linked back to public education and the way that it needed to change and adapt and grow and be more agile to prepare students for this new world. Um, so last fall, uh, we released a report called The Age of Agility that you that you alluded to, um, which looked at this phenomenon. And um, we just went through a, a gubernatorial election cycle where 36 new, uh, there were 36 gubernatorial races, and most of those races focused on the economy, jobs, um, economic development. And uh, in previous cycles, you had some governors who were running to be the education governor, but, um, but, but that was not the case in this last race. And so we tend to believe that the age of agility is the link between some of these state plans to, to grow and, and build their economy uh, and the people they're going to need and the skills that those people are going to need. And it's both, you know, the, the students that are in classrooms as well as the lifelong learners and the people who are going to be on or underemployed as a result of these massive shifts. I want to let uh, listeners know they can find that report at ageofagility.org. It's a, ter a terrific report that really does a, a concise job of describing what's happening 
Um, it's an interesting title. Uh, why do you think about the period that we're in as the age of agility? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, we land, we, it was, it was, uh, the working title was the future of work, which is what I think most people might be more familiar with and, and see quite a bit in, in, um, news and other things, right? Um, we were having a lot of conversations with teachers and educators and folks at the time. And when we were talking about the future of work, um, there were segments of that of that group who felt like it was not the education system's job to prepare kids for work. And so when we referred to it as the future of work, we realized we were missing out on a, on a really important audience. Um, and one of the conversations that we had related to that was with somebody who said that they didn't see it as their job. And we said, well, what do you believe the role is? And they said, we believe our role is to prepare kids for their future. And we said, well, how many of ki- how many kids do you believe will need to work in their future? Um, and it was this aha um, that while we're preparing kids for their future, they need to be more agile. And that became the, the it just shifted uh, from that moment to become the title of the report, um, which we hope just brings and draws more people yeah. into the conversation. So I... I love the title of this report and the insight that it conveys. Um, the the one thing that we can be sure of for our kids and grandkids is that they're going to face a lot more change, uh, more novelty and complexity, and the the insight that agility is going to be important for individuals and communities uh, and organizations is. Uh, Seems really important. Yeah, what, one of the many people who have had their hand and influenced our th- our thinking on this is a guy by the name of Jamie Cassop. Um, his title is the Chief Education Evangelist for Google. Um, and if that's not a title of the future, I don't know what is. Um, when Jamie speaks on this, what Jamie says is, uh, "We are preparing kids for jobs that don't exist, to use technologies that haven't been invented, to solve problems that we don't even know are problems yet." And when you think about the, the education system that we have and that being what its challenge is moving forward, uh, it just becomes really obvious that we're going to have to do some things differently uh, to, to prepare kids for success uh, when, when, when all of those things are unknown. In terms of the, the, the key drivers of change, you, you mentioned artificial intelligence and, and automation when it's combined with enabling technologies like robotics. Are there other drivers of change that you think are are key megatrends? Yeah, well those certainly are the are the big ones. Those are the ones right. that when you when you start looking at the at the reports and you see how that's going to impact. So you have shipping ports that now are almost don't have any actual employees there. Um, these driverless cars, driverless trucks, um, you know, when radiologists, uh, you now have uh, computers and, and AI that can learn to read and be more accurate uh, in reading x-rays um, than humans can. And, and this is just, it's an enormous swath of the, the jobs and the economy that this is going to impact. At the same time, when we say this, there's, there can be a doomsday scenario, and some people kind of are looking at it and, and thinking of it as such. But one of the things that we've that we've heard and we we talk about in on uh, in our work is that a hundred years ago we had thirty percent of the American population working on farms, and today that number is just three percent. And 
the change that's happened there isn't that, and, and I realize the math doesn't work perfectly here, but 27% of the people aren't unemployed. We, we, we've created new jobs. There's new sectors in the economy. We work differently. And we look at the age of agility in much the same way. Um, there are going to be tremendous changes in the way people work, the industries that are created. Um, and there will be tremendous opportunities for folks as a result of this as well. If, if we think back, the iPhone is just 11 years old. Right. There's, there's huge sectors. There's people who are building apps. There's, there's hundreds of companies that are building apps. Um, you know, 12 years ago, what were those folks doing? Right. Um, so this is the exciting side of Another, that as well. Yeah, I mean, Uber and Lyft, um, you know, is helping to monetize underutilized assets. And even three years ago, we wouldn't have thought of uh, an Airbnb experience curator as a job pathway. Um, yeah, right. So these new technologies are, on one hand, very exciting. Uh, they will help us. Uh, combat climate change, uh, cure disease, uh, help uh, create access to to clean water and and uh, and unbelievably powerful tools. And on the other hand, as you said, it, it is going to inevitably lead to job change and then job displacement. It it is difficult to predict at what rate that will happen, and it does seem apparent that it will be quite different by region. And so the work that you're doing, advocating for regions to study uh, both both the downside and the potential uh, seems really, really timely. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I think that the, that the opportunities is what we're excited about and recognizing this. So change typically starts slow and then accelerates. Um, I think we're in that time right now where we can respond. Um, one of the things that we talk about um, around this work um, as, a, as a way to think about this work and what agility could do is we're all familiar with watching the, the national nightly news and seeing somebody who has been laid off from a plant or a mine or something that, uh, and, and you, you typically have a 50 plus year old guy on the television who says, this is the only job I've ever had. This is all I know how to do. And I want my job back. Right. Um, and while we all can understand and relate, um, these are the jobs that are not coming back. And what we think about is with agility, that guy on the screen has a tremendous opportunity to say over the last however many years he's been in a position, here are the skills he's learned. He's been a lifelong learner. He's been continually adapting in that role and that that is applicable in all these other types of roles or positions. And he can stand there on national news and, and kind of audition for his next role. Um, but that there are skills that are transferable and adaptable and it makes him somebody who can can adapt and, and fit into the next role as soon as it's, as it's, as it's available. As we enumerate the, the changes for individuals, I, I this feels like a good spot to, to mention that our conversation in the last 40 years has really been about getting a job. And, and it does seem in this age of agility that it's going to be as equally important to make a job and that we have to help young people uh, learn the entrepreneurial skills, not just to get a job, but to, to create a job. And that might be outside a company or it might be inside a company, but it, it does seem when we think about agile individuals that entrepreneurship is more important than ever. 
would would agree completely. And I think that what this also goes to to begin that, that we begin to need to think about is what types of skills then do you have to teach in the classrooms, um, right? The, the the sum total of human knowledge is, is almost available to everybody on their phone. You can look up any stat or, or and, and it's these critical thinking and communication and collaboration skills um, that become front and center in this new type of agile environment. Um, during a lot of our conversations around the age of agility, um, we, folks have said, you know, the three R's, the reading, writing, and arithmetic are table stakes, but it's now the four C's, creativity, communication, um, critical thinking, and collaboration that become the currency of the future. Um, that's what employers are looking for. And that's what, even if it's to your point, you become your own employer. Uh, those are the skills that are going to allow you to succeed moving forward. And how are we going to to teach those skills in our school and value them and embed them in accountability systems? Uh, these are the conversations that we're having around the country as part of a, an agility tour that we've been on, uh, talking to communities uh, about what this would look like for them to, to to shift their system and become more agile. Well, let's let's talk about the agility tour and and uh, try to list a few of the implications. So, when a, a community engages uh, with you and begins to study what's happening, uh, what, what kinds of implications do they typically identify for for maybe we can start with organizations and public policy. Yeah, great. Um, so uh, we've now been to nine states where we've had conversations on the agility tour. Um, these involve uh, business leaders, educators, uh, community leaders, uh, oftentimes policymakers, uh, and in a number of cases, uh, the governor or the governor's office in the respective states. And as uh, as different as each of the conversations has been, reflective of the states where we've been, um, there's been a number of, of big ideas that have shown up across across the board, um, and and we've we've kind of identified those those big ideas as the learners, uh, which we consider lifelong learners, the people who are going to have to, as we've as we've talked about so far. Um, really think about learning their entire lifetime and gaining skills and being able to, to be agile and adaptable. Um, there are the systems, how the, how the systems will begin to uh, incent the development of, of pathways and different kinds of opportunities, non-traditional providers, um, systems that provide opportunities for under or unemployed people to go back and gain more skills. Uh, credentialing is super important as we look forward to that. And then the last of the, the big ideas is educators. Um, in this sh shift in the way people will begin to work, educators are going to be impacted in the same way. Um, we think that there have got to be different pathways um, to get into the field of education, how we're using mid-career or late-career professionals uh, to be able to convey and transfer skills um, and, and, and educate and prepare students uh, as, they, as they move through the towards their uh towards their future is there i'm wondering if, if if you think we'll begin to see sort of a standard response emerging or do you think every community really needs to craft their own sort of smart cities plan based on uh their circumstances and their their assets yeah we believe we believe quite a bit of this is is um is going to be customized by the states around the country and according to kind of some of their needs or where they are or how they're approaching this work. Um, 
ultimately at the goal uh, of, of America Succeeds as we partner and we talk about this work and share it with others is we are really encouraging. It is, it is the highest, uh, highest order of business, we believe, for states to embed agility as one of their core goals of what the state needs to do to move their state uh, to, to move the state in into the future. So if they if they begin to cite and talk about agility as a theme and that they're going to start looking at all the policies they should be putting it through that lens which will you know this isn't going to be a kind of one and done for any state and it's not going to happen immediately and I think that the idea is is that if you put agility at the top of your uh, the goals for your state then as you begin to pass more policies over time, you begin to create an agile system, which is which is the goal. And as you and and many understand and know, uh, what makes that so important is that if we were to try to build a system that we think we need for ten years out, and the system changes very slowly, um, we could be ten years into a bunch of change and then have it be outdated as soon as we get to that spot. So by embedding agility in all the things we're doing. Um, it will be adaptable over those next 10 years and far beyond. So, so that's why we believe it's such a critical um, component. Hey, listeners, I wanted to take a quick break from the podcast just to make sure that you know about our Future of Work campaign happening right now on GettingSmart.com and all of our social media channels. This podcast was inspired by that campaign and will be included in a future publication that details what the future of work may look like, and most importantly, what we need to do in order to be prepared. If you want to learn more, head to gettingsmart.com slash future of work and follow hashtag future of work on all social media channels. Okay, let's get back to Tom and Tim. So Tim, is there a standard response by state or do you see states taking a unique approach based on need and opportunity? I, I think a lot of this uh, is the need and opportunity. Um, I think there's a different, there are multiple approaches to this. Um, we are, one of the things that we believe very strongly in and are working with states around the country is to have them adopt agility as one of the core themes of their education system. Um, we know that education uh, policy changes very slowly. And one of the things uh, that we're looking at is that if we were to build the system that we need for 10 years or, or 15 years out, even if we knew what that was, it would take us quite a bit of time to, to have that system change. So we're suggesting that all of the policies that states are looking at moving forward are agile, that they allow for uh, for change, that they're not so rigid and we're building them out. So um, that will allow them to continue to respond to these needs and changes that, that again, are, are very, very difficult to predict. There's some great examples of some things that are out there that we've shared uh, through some of our uh, Age of Agility tour and meetings and um, in, in partnering with other folks and, and looking at, at great examples and samples of those types of things around the country. You know, I think this might be a, a place to underscore the importance of business partnerships. As witnessed by our last election, our elected bodies, our cities and states um, often undergo political changes, but the, the businesses that uh, make up the backbone of, of any community are often around for generations and can be a, a bridge to um, provide stability in leadership and learning leadership. That seems to be an important asset that you 
can help build on in a community. Yeah, that was at the at the core of launching Colorado Succeeds years ago and America Succeeds in our work around the country is um, you have changes in the political uh, in political powers in states and, and federally. Uh, you have kind of the soup du jour idea of the day in education policy. Um, business is consistent. Uh, business is the, you know, ultimately, again, I, I, I refer to them as the end users of the education systems product. Um, and I think most families understand that they, they want their kids to go through uh, and be prepared to enter the workforce, to contribute to their local economy and to be a good citizen. Um, and business is here saying right now, here are the types of things we need. The skill sets are changing rapidly. Um, and I think that it is why it's so important that business is at the table when we talk about education policy. They actually don't even have a dog in the fight. They're trying to work with and they just want the same thing for for the kids is to for them to be prepared to come into their uh, company and and be successful and contribute so uh, they're on the same page what's your sense of um, of how schools can adapt to the changes that are happening in the world so this is one of the the really interesting and and, and most fun aspects of, of the work is that when we released the Age of Agility report, uh, it, it was not prescriptive. In fact, there was nothing at the end that said, here's what we propose happened. Uh, it was um, it was really just kind of the the identification of the big issue that uh, that we saw coming. And um it's the partners around the country. It's getting smart. It's you and uh, policymakers and some other folks who have had some really wonderful ideas and starting now to assemble all those ideas and show examples of what this could look like. There are some unbelievable pockets of schools, even districts um, that are that are doing phenomenal work. There's some fantastic policies that really start to move towards uh, an agile system that can adapt very, very quickly. Um, and it's collecting and then disseminating these uh, th- this type of information so that others can have it. Um, so that this is, you know, this is a fact of life for, for every kid, not just uh, the ones who are lucky enough to be in a school that, that has figured it out. One thing we've learned in the last few years is is if you hold these community conversations about what's happening in the world and what it means for kids and community, that you always leave with uh, with a pretty good plan. That if you trust the process and expose the underlying trends um, in community by community, whether it's well resourced or poorly resource to leave with a pretty good picture of what graduates should know and be able to do and a and a plan for how to begin better preparing kids uh, along those lines so I, I know your community conversations have, have been really really productive um, how can businesses help what, what what should a business do that wants to get involved? Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think one of the one of the most enjoyable things about that is, is as diverse and different as all these communities are, everybody's pretty much coming to the same conclusion. Um, this is uh, how we're preparing kids for a rapidly changing world. And uh, and I think we we absolutely see that it's coming and um, it's inescapable. So uh, we, we've got to do something. And to, to that end, Business just has to be part of the conversation. They have to talk about their needs, the way that they are thinking about employment. They see these things happening and the trends that are happening behind the scenes um, as well as anybody. Um, Every industry uh, sector that participated in this tour, and we've had 
uh, healthcare and hospitality and transportation. I mean, you almost can't name a sector that didn't participate. They all are telling the same story. Um, and I think that that's why it is so important that business is at the table because um, it's the reality and they, uh, they're not pushing the system just for the sake of pushing the system. They're, they're, they're pushing on the system because they really see the opportunity for it to adapt um, and better prepare students to be successful. In your tour, have you talked about uh, the importance of work-based learning and and partnering with schools to help them become more agile? Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's it's one of our favorite topics. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that's going to to become more and more important is uh, is credentialing is how we get kids uh, while they're in school to to earn credentials that are stackable that sh- that begin to create a path. And again, that put them on a path to lifelong learning. Um, I'll share one quick policy example as a, as a specific that we're super excited about. In Colorado, they created a fund of about a million dollars um, as a pilot. And in districts around the state, they worked with employers to identify the types of skills, certifications that students needed. Um, these were industry-based certifications, not not just you know Mr. Smith's welding class, but this was like the American welding certificate that they would uh, that, that students could earn. And for every kid that earned one of those certificates that were aligned to an industry need, the school, not the district, the school received a thousand dollars from that fund uh, to incentivize the, the teaching and getting of the earning of those certificates. What's really what, what makes this so agile and, and, and interesting and gr- a great policy is that they are constantly working with the employers. So if a, if a certificate falls out of favor or if there's an updated certificate, the old certificate no longer earns the $1,000. The, the schools have to adapt. They, uh, the teachers have to be prepared to teach that next certification. Um, but the kids are building these stackable credentials. They're leaving with things that employers are already looking for. And it's highly agile because it shifts uh, in real time uh, with what the employers are looking for. And uh, we think that's just a superb example of how policies can be built um, with with agility embedded. And Tim, this seems to point to um, a new post-secondary landscape that includes higher education as we've traditionally thought about it, but also many new options that are um, as Ryan Craig would say, a, a hard sprint to a good first job. Uh, that might be a coding boot camp or a training program that, as you said, leads to uh, stackable uh, certifications and allows a, a young person to step on the earning ladder and then begin to work and learn um, in, in very new ways, but with a lot of learning that's embedded um, and associated with a a career pathway. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's enormous. Um, you know, we uh, to circle back to the beginning of our conversation. Um, it, it was my dad telling me that I needed to go to school because that was the escalator to the next uh, to, to success. Um, I'm not telling my kids the exact same thing. Um, I was that generation in between my dad and my kids where. Um, that was the that was the best guarantee um, for my kids. There's probably a lot of other ways that they could go to pursue interests um, as the cost of four year university goes up and the the debt associated with that for a lot of families. Um, the ROI uh, four year institutions are having to take a hard look at how how they fit into this. Um, 
What's really interesting about this is in conversations around the country, uh, four-year universities are being far more agile than we ever anticipated. We thought that that would be the sort of ivory tower approach and that the universities would say, well, you know, if you graduate from our university, by definition, you're agile. Uh, it's really amazing to see how they're beginning to shift uh, the, their programs and the way that they're teaching kids to be prepared for this new world. So um, I, I think there's just so much excitement that, that um, again, I don't see that this as being an alarm bell. I think it's uh, I think it's a call to action, but there's some great things that are happening around the country that are responding to this. And I think the the, the opportunity is to increase our sense of urgency for the folks who might be um, a little bit further behind uh, to to catch up really quick and to to be able to enjoy and, and reap the benefits of what this is going to offer, as opposed to just the the consequences of and, and some of the downsides that will also happen if you're not if you're not prepared. Well, we think uh, key to agility is the kind of conversations that you're hosting that bring stakeholders together that have a different view of this landscape. So we really appreciate the the community conversations that you've sparked. Uh, maybe you could give us a quick look at uh, a look forward at 2019. What what kind of work would you like to be doing in the coming year? Yeah, so we're really excited. Um, in January, we're going to wrap up the previous year's tour uh, at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce um, in partnership with Getting Smart and uh, a number of other folks from around the country to, to look back on how um, the, the conversations led us to a, to a handful of conclusions. And now we've got nine states that are already uh, included as partners who are eagerly looking for uh, additional samples, examples, and recommendations of the types of policies that we've discovered. And it's this being able to share information and, and promising practices uh, that we will actually have some real actionable items for states to, to take on. And um, again, it's, uh, it's this benefit of thousands of folks who have, who have participated in the conversations and all come to the same conclusions uh, that gives us uh, some hope and and some credibility in terms of moving forward that it's it's the same thing we all want the same things for our kids um and there's multiple approaches to get there and there's multiple pathways in the education system and we've just got to begin uh, the the difficult work of making sure every kid's got access to the best opportunities they can to succeed tim where can people find you online yeah, so uh, americasucceeds.org is uh, is the organization's website. Um, the ageofagility.org is um, where all of the work associated with the, our Age of Agility platform um, is is available as well. Uh, we'd love for folks who are interested to uh, to reach out, to contact, to join us. Um, this is as big of a tent as we can possibly uh, build. Uh, the more, the merrier. There is, uh, there is nobody who is on the outside of this conversation. The impact is far too large. Um, we are inviting everybody who believes they have something to contribute or who is eager to uh, work on transforming the systems for kids. Um, and, and, and this has really got to be system-wide. We are super excited and love the examples of an individual school or groups of schools. Um, but, but this is, uh, this has got to be, this has got to be available to every single kid. Tim Taylor, America succeeds. Thanks for being on the getting smart podcast. Tom, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. 
A big thanks to Tim for taking time to chat with us and for the entire team at America Succeeds for the work they're doing to support workforce readiness for learners. And if you want to learn more about the future of work and what's needed to ensure a healthy economy and that learners are ready to face jobs that don't even exist yet, head on over to gettingsmart.com slash future of work. And as always, if you liked today's episode, be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future content and be sure to rate us while you're there. That's it for today, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.